his children. My name's, my name's Jerry, and uh, I am one of the grandparents of Steve and Amy's children. You, you, you don't get known at a certain point as the father of, you get, you get to be known. It's, a, it's, a, it's the greatest privilege of all to be, to be the grandparents of, so there you go. Good to be with you. We've been following right along with you, even though we're not, uh, we're here only very infrequently in body. We're here weekly in spirit because the good people at that sound booth make that possible with the production. Uh, so if nobody else is uh, downloading your sermons here, I am. And uh, you got to check up, right? You got to make sure everybody's on the right path. And um, it's been our privilege to uh, study with you through the Gospel of Matthew and my special privilege to be here today to help you sort of get to um, the finish line, I guess, in just a couple of weeks, right? Yeah. So today we're in Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to be looking at the, what I'm going to call, there's a lot in Matthew 26, but I think the, I think the centerpiece of it is the Gethsemane story. And that's where we're going, to, we're going to zero in on our time together. And I want to show you this morning how Jesus is not only our Savior, that would be more than enough to be sure, but he is also our hero. And I want to explain what I mean by that. If Jesus becomes our Savior on the cross, he becomes our hero through his obedience to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. And my, my goal is for us to leave here with a better understanding of why the Garden of Gethsemane event is so important and how it helps us to understand the beauty and the power of the gospel. So let's read now from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, verses 36 to 46. If you need a Bible and you can read the incredibly small font, print size of it, we'll happily give you one. You know you're getting old when you... When you open, you open the church's Bible and it's like, wow, I can't read that font. Anyway, there it is, the NIV, available to anybody who raises their hands. We just charge that to Steve's account. Matthew 26, beginning at verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it be possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he found... He again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. 
a thing we've been leading up to, a moment that we've been anticipating step by step as we make our way deeper into the Gospel of Matthew. And I want to begin uh, here. Jesus' ministry began with a temptation in the wilderness, and it ends, or maybe better to say it begins to end, with this temptation in the garden on the eve of the crucifixion. Jesus has just had his last supper with the disciples where Judas betrayed and Peter's where Ju- Judas's betrayal and Peter's denial were signaled after which Jesus goes with three of his friends to this secluded place for a time of prayer conversation with his father and there and then something happens to Jesus in the garden that begs for an explanation and that's what I want to explore with you, something way more troubling and traumatic, certainly, than the drowsiness of his friends, though we'll get to that. Matthew refers to Jesus being sorrow, sorrowful and troubled to the point of death. In verse 38, Luke, referencing the very same moment, says, Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, this is, the technical language for this is, this is a description of someone in extremis, in the grip of something not just troubling, not just frightening, not just horrific, but something more, something overwhelming. And what I want us to see is this scene throws as much light on the nature and meaning of Jesus' death and how we should respond to it as any text in the New Testament. And to help us sort this out, I'm just asking two questions this morning. First of all, why why the magnitude of Christ's agony? Why is he in extremis? And what do we learn from the timing of this event? What does it mean that Jesus' agony begins right here in the garden, um, just in advance of his ordeal that leads to crucifixion? So we'll think first about the magnitude of Jesus' suffering. Verse 37 again tells us that as he approached the place of prayer, he began to experience, literally was confronted with, a profound sense of doom, of terror. It would be hard to overstate, it would be impossible to overstate the magnitude of what he's facing here. Mark's gospel adds that he was astonished by it, and as I just showed you, Luke tells us that he was in a state of such distress such distress that his body began to spontaneously bleed, a rare but medically documented phenomenon. He says, my soul is sorrowful to the point of death. Jesus, who was as poised as any man who ever lived, is not just having a bad moment, he's experiencing a crushing weight of dread so heavy it feels like it will kill him. It will just crush him. Now, according to our theology, Jesus is both a man and the second person of the Trinity who, even in his humanity, seems to anticipate every moment, every eventuality. Yet here he is in a state of emotional shock before his actual death experience. And the question is, what are we to make of this? What exactly exactly is going on here? I think one way to get at an answer to that question 
is to ask, how does Jesus' reaction to the prospect of his death compare to that of his followers? I think, I think you'll find this interesting. I hope you will. The gospel writers knew by the time they wrote their accounts that many of Jesus' followers faced death with serenity, with peace, with poise, with amazing phrases of hopefulness. Luke records that when Stephen faced his executioners, his radiant face was like the face of an angel, Acts 6.15. And as they stoned him to death in, in emulating his Lord, he prayed for those who took his life. Church history, Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, who was a disciple of the Apostle John, having been dragged into the arena to be tortured and burned to death, calmly said to the God, to the gathered crowd, how can I renounce him whom I have served all these years with a kind of astonishing peace and poise? In Oxford, England, on Broad Street, to this very hour, there is a monument to Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer who were burned at the stake for their faith under the reign of Bloody Mary in October of 1555. <laughs> In, in a display of uh, the most astonishing display of, of, of the British stiff, stiff upper lip, it, this may be uh, the most famous words attributed to any Christian martyr. As the flames began to envelop them, Latimer turned to Ridley and said, Be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light such a candle in England as I trust shall never be put out. Just unbelievable uh, confidence and, and hope. So one historian writes that this was one of the primary ways Christian apologists commended the faith to doubters and skeptics. They argued that Christ followers suffered and died better than pagans and went on to explain why they believed that was so. Christians, by the dozens, the hundreds, the thousands, and more, have met their martyrdom with hymns and hands raised in prayer, offering forgiveness to their tormentors as they breathed their last. So what do we, what do, we do with Jesus' terror at the prospect of his own death? He asks, is there any way out of this? To be blunt, how do we account for the fact that Jesus' followers face death with greater poise than him? Feels almost heretical to ask that, but there it is. The answer is, nobody ever faced a death like Jesus was facing. And part of our mission this morning is to understand what that means. Nobody, nobody ever has or ever will face a death like the one Jesus faced. As good students of the Gospel of Matthew having worked your way through it over the last year or so, um, you know Jesus knew and declared as such that he was going to die. The Gospels testify that he frequently predicted that he would be killed. So he's not surprised that his time has come, yet something has overwhelmed him, and the question is, what is it? What is the source of his great distress? And the answer is, it's the cup. He says, Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. Is there any way, Father, for me to avoid the cup? So what is the cup? Um, you may know 
from history that Socrates was executed with a cup. He was poisoned. Several of Shakespeare's characters were dispatched with a cup. It's certainly death by execution, but it's more than that. In the Bible, the cup refers very specifically and in many places to God's wrath, that phrase that nobody really wants to hear much about, the wrath of God, the full weight of God's judgment against all that's wrong and broken in this world for all time, his judgment against all that's guilty. Ezekiel says to the wicked, you shall drink the cup of ruin and desolation and tear your breasts. Isaiah refers to the cup of God's fury, which will cause you to stagger. This was and is the punishment of God the Father coming down full force on his beloved son, his one and only son. So Stephen, Polycarp, Latimer, Ridley, and all the others weren't facing the cup because Jesus had faced it for them. There's the gospel, right? Paul looks ahead to his, to his death and says things like to live is Christ and to die is gain. But Jesus sees something so horrific and terrible that he begs his friends to be with him and then shudders and bleeds in prayer. What does he see? Well, I believe it's the desolation and deprivation of separation from the Father, from whom he had never for one second ever been separated, if we understand our doctrine of the Trinity. This is a major and terrifying theme of Scripture. In Genesis 3, immediately following their act of rebellion in a different garden, Adam and Eve hear God ask, where are you? And preachers try to make a, a kind of mediocre joke by asking, you know, does the omniscient God of the universe ask this because he lost his people finder or something like that? I mean, where are you? It's not like, what would the GPS say? It's like, where are you in relation to me? See, this is a, a description of consequence. Rebellion against God results in separation from God Paul says of those who reject the gospel, they will be shut out from the presence of the Lord and the majesty of his power. And for the, sorry, for the first time in his eternal existence, and I don't even know how to wrap my mind around that, Jesus sees this in its full, uh, the full weight of it. Let's just tease this out. Why exactly would that be a punishment? And the answer is, we were, and, and so terrifying. We, we, the answer is we were made to live in the care and companionship of God. We were made by God for God. So we need his presence like, like a flower needs the sun. A flower without sunshine soon withers and dies, death by separation from the very source of its life. So what sin does, among other things, is promise what I'll call the prize of independence. It's such a dark thing. All of us, at least some of the time, feel like we would be much happier if we were free to live exactly as we choose, that we would be happier if we didn't have God looking over our shoulder, nosing around in our business. Yet the reality is we need God like a flower needs the sun, and so the ultimate punishment, the ultimate disaster 
And God's just judgment and his poetic justice is to withdraw himself from us who choose to live in perfect independence. It's the most terrifying truth in all the universe. That, in, that God's just judgment will to give us, would be to give us precisely what we want if it's independence from him that we seek, to be rid of him. Romans 1 describes this when Paul says to those who want life on their own terms, God gave them over, if you know your Romans 1, you know where I'm going here, God gave them over three times. God gave them over to their own desire. Which led C.S. Lewis to observe there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. It's poetic justice because it's extraordinarily fair. God's abandonment of those who withdraw from him, who want nothing to do with him. It's extraordinarily fair, is it not? The ultimate punishment is God saying, if you want to live apart from me, you may live apart from me. And we become flowers in a sunless universe. We fall apart. We disintegrate. And Jesus began to experience that. That's the point. That's the cup. That's the thing he was facing and wrestling with and wondering if he uh, could be spared the experience of. And I want you to see why it came as such a shock. Why did Jesus, think now, simple question, why did Jesus go to the garden? What did he go there to do? He went there to pray, the most intimate act of connection and communication of which we're capable with God. Jesus Christ, more than any other human being in the history of the world, knew unbroken, perfect, intimate fellowship with the Father. But here, as he kneels to pray, he opens his, the eyes of his heart to a scene he has never before witnessed. This inhabitant of eternity witnesses a sight he has never before witnessed, the darkest corner of the universe where the omnipresent God chooses not to be. William Lane, a great Bible commentator, put it this way, the dreadful sorrow and anxiety out of which the prayer for the passing of the cup springs is not an expression of fear at the prospect of physical suffering. It is rather the horror of one who lived wholly for the Father and who came to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal but found hell rather than heaven open before him to his spiritual consciousness. Do you see that? Can you begin to imagine how horrific that would be. On the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But that experience began here in the garden. So he turned to the Father in prayer and began to experience separation, exclusion, abandonment, a, a, a utterly unfamiliar territory. The withdrawal of the Father who must now deal a death blow to sin and death by bringing the full weight of his wrath down on his only begotten son so that he could be both just to himself and his holiness and the justifier of all who believe. He who knew no separation from the Father now begins to see that he must endure the Father's abandonment for the sins of the world and it is agony. 
He's not surprised that he's going to die. Again, he's predicted it numerous times as we've learned. He's not complaining even about physical death. It's the cup. It's the experience of hell, of eternal separation from his father in a concentrated moment of time. That's what's causing his skin to bleed and his spirit to tremble with fear. Now, before going on to the second question, let me, let me just ask, do you see what he's doing and that he does it for you. This is the most important thing in the end. If, if, we, if you don't get to this point, then you've missed what it is that he did. Do you see that he endured this for you? Do I see that he did this for me? You know, people often say, I don't believe in a God of wrath, I believe in a God of love. To which we need to learn to say, you can't have one without the other. Real love hates what is its opposite. The true measure of God's love is the price he's willing to pay, the burden he's willing to bear for our rescue. This is the God of love, friends. There is no more loving moment than this one. I I fear so often our our yearning for the God of love is just pure sentimentality. There's no sentimentality here. This is love in action, costly love, love that bleeds. And until you see a God who is willing to vanquish our greatest enemy at his own expense, at the greatest expense, you cannot comprehend the magnitude of his love for you. Hmm? Until you see him drinking the cup in your place, you will never fully grasp the love of God for you. Jonathan Edwards, who's worth reading, he's a little hard for 21st century people to read, but he's worth reading, and most of what he wrote is available online for free. In his masterful sermon on the agony of Christ, asked this question, if just a glimpse of the cup and the terror of abandonment were enough to throw the Son of God into shock and to nearly kill him in the anticipation of it, what was the actual full experience of those sufferings on the cross really like? And again, you can, I think you can actually get lost right there in just the heaviness of it until you ask the question, do you realize this he did for you? It is how we account for the magnitude of his agony in the garden that he embraced this for us. So that's the first question. Here's the second one. The second question has to do with the timing of this experience. This is one of those things that um, took me a long time to, to, to see the point of. This is not, at, at first it seemed like kind of an incidental question, but I, it's not. Why is Jesus confronted with the cup the day before his death? Why didn't the Father give Jesus one last great, powerful, inspirational prayer time? Why wasn't there a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit love fest right in advance of the miseries that were soon to come to sustain and strengthen him for the ordeal? Why did his agony have to begin before his crucifixion? And I think the answer requires us to recall that Jesus makes a major point of saying in John's gospel, I give my life for my sheep. No man takes my life from me. I lay it down. I voluntarily lay it down of my own accord. 
To rightly appreciate the work of Christ for us, we must grasp its voluntariness. And I want to spend a couple of minutes on this. Jesus did what he did with full knowledge of what he was getting into because, it, you know, it's one thing, it is one thing to find yourself in the middle of a difficult challenge and quite another to know exactly what's coming and embrace the danger anyway. I, I am, I'm a man and not a woman. I'm a father and not a mother. But I, I have to believe that in some ways it's the second child that's the scariest one because this time you know exactly what's coming. All the mysteries are gone, right? This is, this is why, this is a reason why I choose the phrase Jesus is our hero because courage is not the absence of fear. It's the decision to forge ahead in spite of our fear, knowing full well what's coming. So do you see, in our text, we find Jesus in the dark. The soldiers haven't yet arrived. The disciples, his friends, are asleep, alone in prayer. He begins to sense, to see, to experience, not just know with his head, but grasp in his soul what Jonathan Edwards describes as a vivid, bright, full, immediate view of the wrath of God. Just as was true in the desert temptation, Jesus could have called 10,000 angels to come to his side. It would have been so easy to indulge himself. And he does, in fact, talk to the Father about it. Is there any way out? Yet he presses forward and pledges to do the Father's will, which, friends, makes this a radically, radically voluntary act. Again, Jonathan Edwards, Christ was going to be cast into a dreadful furnace of wrath and it was not proper that he should plunge himself into it not knowing how dreadful that furnace would be. Therefore, God brought him and set him at the mouth of the furnace that he might look in and view its fierce and raging flames and might see where he was going and might voluntarily enter into it and bear it for sinners knowing what it was. If Christ had not fully known before he took the cup and drank it, it would not have properly been his own act as a man. But when he took that cup, knowing what he did, so was his love. Listen to these powerful words. So was his love to us infinitely the more wonderful and his obedience to God infinitely the more perfect. Say what you will about these old guys. They had a command in the language, didn't they? Because it was so radically voluntary, it made what he did infinitely more wonderful and perfect. So let's tease that out for just a, a few minutes. How, how could something be infinitely more perfect? <laughs> how could something perfect be infinitely more? Well, let me show you, best I can. Isn't, isn't the greatest command to love God and neighbor? Y you know the answer to that. Of course it is. is isn't, isn't that the whole of the law? Yes, it is. So let's look at Jesus Christ loving God through obedience for no one has ever obeyed God like Jesus did. No one has ever obeyed the Father like the Son himself. In the beginning, God put Adam in a garden, showed him a tree and said, obey me about the tree and you will live. I will be with you. But Adam disobeyed God, and centuries later, God put the second Adam in a garden, showed him a tree, only this time it's a cross, and says, Obey me about the tree, and you will die. You will drink the cup of my wrath, and I will abandon you. 
Do you see every other person in history has always been told by God, obey me, obey me and I will be with you. Obey me and, I, and you will live. And only Jesus Christ is told, obey me and you will be destroyed. Obey me and you will be abandoned. And yet he obeyed. No one has ever loved God like that. No one has ever obeyed like that. His, his obedience to God was infinitely the more perfect. It stretches the limits of language, but how else do you describe the most radical act of voluntary, voluntary sacrificial submission ever? He loved God with infinite perfection, but that's not all. No one has ever loved his neighbor like this. What a gross understatement, but I don't know how else to say it. No one has ever loved his neighbor like this. Look at his neighbors. Needing support and companionship, Jesus brings three friends with him to the garden and says, please stay awake. I need you. Be there for and with me. But they keep falling asleep. These are the people for whom Jesus is about to drink the cup of God's wrath. One, one writer put it like this, in that garden, when he could have left, and he's seeing humanity at its worst, it's almost like God was saying to him, here's the cup you are to drink, there is the furnace into which you will be cast, if they, these sleeping fellows over here, these people who are falling asleep on you, whom you just beg to stay awake, there's no other way, if they're to be saved, either they perish or you perish. A terrible, terrible cup. See what pain and anguish you are going to endure. Do you love them? Do you love them enough to do this? Says the Father to the Son. So one more Edwards quote points out in his sermon, Jesus Christ did not say, which he could have in all justice, why should I who am so great and glorious a person, plunge myself into such dreadful, amazing torments for people who cannot ever requite me for it. Indeed, why should I be crushed under the weight of divine wrath for those who will not even stay awake with me in my hour of greatest need? Now, you all, every one of you, can probably point to someone, maybe a parent or a friend, who sacrificed for you when you weren't what you should have been maybe especially to them, but nobody, nobody ever sacrificed for you like this. No, no one has ever loved you like this. No, no one has ever loved anyone like this. His love for us is infinitely the more wonderful and his, obedient, his obedience infinitely the more perfect because in the garden he sensed what was happening, he began to taste it, and he could have said no, but he said yes. He said yes. This is the greatest love ever expressed, but exactly what difference does it make for us? Well, as we head for communion, I want to tease out some implications of all of this, and then, then we'll go there. What difference does all of this make for us? My answer is this. If this is true, and it is, if he did this for you, and he did, then think for a moment about what it is we've been given here. More than I can talk about in my time, but 
first, let's think about a model of integrity. It's hard to pick the right word there, a model of obedience, a model of courage. All of those fit in this category. A model of integrity, courage, obedience. He, he is the same in the dark as he is in the light with a kind of perfection that takes our breath away if we understand it. He is in the garden as he was on the mount, right? Sermon on the mount moment. Same. same. And the question here, sorry, but here it is, is your life that integrated and honest? Well, of course it isn't. It's just not. The light of his great sacrifice for you, shouldn't you and I want to work on that? And we see this in the Bible. The psalmist admits in Psalm 81, I have a divided heart. Oh Lord, unite my heart to fear your name. Bring into congruence my behavior and my beliefs. Isn't that in our best and sanest moments what we all want? Whatever else it is we pray about each day, we need to cry out to God for help to integrate our life, to bring our behavior in line with our beliefs. A model of integrity. We're given a model of prayer. In the garden, Jesus combines the two things that make prayer powerful and right. And you know what they are. On the one hand, we see the absolute emotional and spiritual honesty and openness Jesus displays. He is completely honest about his struggle. It almost seems sacrilegious if you think maybe a little more about his being the second person of the Trinity than his being a man. There's, there's no stiff upper lip. There's, there's nothing stoic about this. He says openly and honestly, I think this will crush me. Is there no other way? Yes, is there no other way? Absolutely honest, absolutely open about his inner struggle. He does not sugarcoat or spiritualize. He is rigorously, painfully honest. But at the same time, and here's what's so exemplary about his prayer, he knows, he knows the purpose of prayer is not to bend God's will to fit ours. The purpose of prayer is to bend our will to fit God's, to set our heart on things above, as the New Testament epistles tell us, to resolve to submit to his wisdom. Jesus is headed into the worst situation imaginable and in the end says, I realize, Father, you are brilliantly wise and entirely trustworthy. Therefore, therefore, your will be done. We just rarely do what Jesus did. Trust God that much. He is at once emotionally and intellectually honest and humble, trusting, and submissive. A, a, just a, an astonishing model of prayer. We're given a model for forgiveness. Look at, look at how he treats his flaky friends. The people who are falling asleep on him. Jesus does what we almost never do. He connects compassion with admonishment, and he does it with wisdom and grace. He tells them what he needs from them. Sit here, watch and pray. Be with me. And when they let him down, he challenges them. Could you not watch with me one hour? And then makes room for their humanity with these gentle words, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's just amazing. What do we do when others fail us? Either curse them or ditch them. That's roughly the summary thing, right? 
We get angry or we clam up and walk away and say to ourselves, I am so done with them. Here, Jesus um, is confronting them, yet being gentle, finding something, to, finding something to praise, and in the end, forgiving them. Why? Why? Because he understood they were weak, frail and fallen. That's why he died for them. And if he did that for you and me, and he did, how do we hold a grudge against those who have not wronged us to nearly the extent that we have wronged him? We, we all wrestle with forgiveness because we feel justified in our, in our anger, in our hurt, in our self-pity. But here is the only innocent man whoever lived, who's been wounded by everybody and abandoned by all. And he understands their frailty and he forgives them. It's astonishing. One more, he's also a model for handling suffering. Here's one of the best ways to see how we are all sinners. Not that you didn't know this already. Many of us have perfect recall about every sin committed against us, but we get amnesia when it comes to the events we've committed against each other. I love to remember the punishments I got that I didn't deserve. I savor them. I linger on them. I think about them in my self-justifying ways. But I don't spend hardly a minute thinking or remembering the punishments I deserve that I actually never got. And talking about suffering and injustice is such a painful and difficult thing. But it needs to be said. It just needs to be said. There is unjust suffering in this world. And some of you, maybe all of you to one extent or another, have experienced it. And I'm sorry for that. There is unjust suffering in the narrow sense. You, you might be going through something right now that you don't deserve, and again, I say I'm sorry, but in a larger sense, because we are all sinners, there are no completely innocent sufferers among us, which is to say Jesus was the only true, the only innocent sufferer ever, ever to live. He, he was the ultimate in, innocent sufferer. But instead of shaking his fist at God, he says, I know you, Father, are accomplishing your will in this. I know something is happening here that is way more important than my suffering and that my suffering can be productive. Now, if you are suffering, this will feel painful. And again, I'm sorry, but here it is. What I'm saying here is he took his big cup for you. Now you take your little cup for him. We, we occasionally, we need to talk to ourselves like this. He took his big cup submissively. He took his unjust suffering for you. Now, if you have your little cup, can't you take it with a certain amount of peace and poise, knowing what he did for you, knowing what he intends to do in you, namely, perfect you? So these are among the amazing gifts we're given by his example in this whole story. But there is something way more important than all of that, much as I've tried to make a case for it. Because the deepest truth and the one I want you to um, sit with as we take the elements in a moment is Jesus is more than exemplar. 
it's, it is one of the most beautiful things that he is our hero. But he is way more than our exemplar and our hero. He is our savior. And God be thanked. So far, I've given you examples of integrity, prayer, forgiveness, and endurance and suffering. But examples only carry us so far. In fact, at some point, they become a kind of discouragement to us if all we do is imitate Jesus. Because at the end of the day, our great need is not imitation, it's transformation. To live like Jesus lived, we need to be we need to be transformed. We need to be resurrected. We need the life of God at work in us. How does that work? How can we be changed? Here is how. Look at him. Look at Jesus heroically volunteering to suffer in the garden for you. Dying in the dark for you. Securing your pardon and reconciling you to God. To be, to be ravished and enchanted. Moved and amazed overwhelmed and thunderstruck by a love that faced sin and hell, torment and death for you is the only power sufficiently strong to change your heart and to transform you. You must, um, the best writers in, in church history are the ones who remind us that we all suffer, not from a lack of knowledge, but from what they call gospel amnesia. We forget this most important point. One of the reasons we gather for worship every week, one of the reasons we take the elements every week, in this church at least, is because we forget everything we celebrate in that moment that is the basis of our actual transformation. We must be ravished by these things. The Bible says, For our sake God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What does that mean? It means that Jesus was treated as we deserve, so that we could be treated as he deserves. And you and I need to think about this, and meditate on this, and be reminded and re-reminded about this until it captivates our hearts until it stirs us and leads us to want to change. The thing you and I need most is for his love to us, which is infinitely the more wonderful, and his obedience to God for us, which is infinitely the more perfect, to be the controlling influence of our life. To be the controlling influence of our life. This truth needs to be more important to us than anything else, the controlling influence of your life. What is the controlling influence of your life? You'd do well to think that one through. What is most important to you and me? Often, often it's just the approval of some other person or other people. I think in the realm of Davis, academic standing, big deal, right? Career success, somebody good-looking to like us. A big paycheck, a nice house, a cool car, a reputation. I could, I could spend another hour just listing the things that are the controlling influence of our lives more than half the time. But all these things, everything I could put in a grand long list hang by the fragile thread of changeable circumstances or others' opinions of us when the only one whose opinion matters has loved us all the way to hell and back in the way that I've been laboring to describe to you this morning. Do you see it? And here's the better question. Have you been seized by it? See, that's, 
I don't like to call it a trick, but it, it just comes to mind. That's the trick. It's not just to see the gospel, it's to be seized by it. It's one thing to know that honey is sweet and another to taste the sweetness of honey. Sometimes we do see it and are seized by it, and then the de devil whispers uh, in our heads, you're not worthy <laughs> for so many reasons. He's not going to put up with you forever. And, and you and I need to figure out you know, how each of us in our own selves say this, but some version of this, of we, we need to learn to say to the devil in our, in our broken conscience, of course we aren't worthy, but he is. And the Garden of Gethsemane and the cross that followed proved, prove he has placed his love on me. So I'll ask, are your foul-ups and failures, however bad, likely to deter Jesus in his commitment to you? Hmm? After all, Jesus voluntarily endured for you, for me. Is it likely that he will look at us and say, well, that's it. I've had it. Infinite existential torment and divine abandonment is one thing, but I can only take so much. I'm just done with you. Do you think Jesus will say that about you or me? in light of what we've looked at this morning. If the cup did not make him give up on us, nothing will. This is what Paul says and means when he writes, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. The Lord says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Friend, this is the love for which you and I have always been looking, always wanted, and that we so desperately need. This is the love you and I have been looking for all our lives. So as we come to the communion table, the Eucharist, our celebration of the gift of grace, look, look at Jesus Christ dying in the dark for you. Look at Jesus wrestling with the cup and then voluntarily drinking it for you. Let the truth of that melt you. Let it move you. Let it overcome you. Let it fill your heart and grip your soul until it begins to change you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words, which can be, and I pray they will be, a source of healing and help, encouragement and life, the one and truest thing that we need at the center of our souls, in the middle of our minds. Thank you, Lord, for the glimpse um, that we get into the, into the heart of your Son, in, into the very heart of the Trinity, the love that holds the universe together. We see you, Father, willing to sacrifice your Son on our behalf. We see Jesus voluntarily giving his life. We see the work of the Spirit to bring your perfect will to pass. Thank you, God. Thank you for this love to us that is infinitely the more wonderful and for this obedience to you that is infinitely the more perfect. We're grateful for it. and pray that you'll use it more and more as we face our gospel amnesia and embrace more deeply and truly these truths to our hearts. Even now as we take communion, we pray for your help in this. In Jesus' name.